I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome back to the FT's Banking Weekly, your Monday take on the top issues in the world of banking with me, Brooke Masters. Today, we look at the prospects for a renegotiation of the private sector's role in bailing out Greece. If they take a more than 21% haircut on Greece, what that opens up is how much they should be discounting, most particularly their Italian holdings. And it looks like a bidding war is on the cards for the state-owned bank Northern Rock as NBNK prepares to go up against Richard Branson's Virgin Money and private equity firm J.C. Flowers. And we're looking at hopefully about a billion pounds for the sale of what's called the good part of Northern Rock. What did J.P. Morgan's flat third quarter results say about the prospects for the U.S. banking sector as a whole? It was a horrible quarter for the investment bank. That is going to be repeated across the board pretty much unless we see someone who pulls a rabbit out of a hat. Joining me to discuss these issues are investment banking correspondent Megan Murphy and retail banking correspondent Charlene Goff. Hi. Hi. First up, with less than a week to go until a major summit, the pressure is on the European leaders to agree a comprehensive plan to end the Eurozone's sovereign debt crisis. But what are the real prospects for a recap or renegotiation of the private sector's involvement in bailing out Greece? Megan's been following this issue. We touched on this a little bit last week. We touched on this the week before. We touched on this the week before the week before. So it does feel like we are sort of at Groundhog Day with, with this issue. But look, we had a couple of interesting uh, developments last week and another one this morning. Uh, where we're where we're at with this is that we had the positive news that we are expecting some type of you know pretty comprehensive plan to be released um, on October twenty third at a meeting of European leaders. Um, and just a reminder to our listeners that there there is also the G twenty summit coming up in Cannes in France uh, in the beginning of November. Now, this morning, we've had some pushback on that from Germany saying, you know, look, we're not going to get everything resolved in a week. We've, this crisis has been going on for two years. Um, obviously, we're not going to be able to put everything together in a week. But we do seem there has been, I would say, definitely over the past 10 days, a real hardening of the realization that we need to get two fundamental issues solved. One is private sector involvement, so-called PSI, in terms of um, the Greek bailout, the 109 billion euro Greek bailout that has been agreed already. And the second issue is this recap of the banks, of European banks. Now, there are so many moving pieces on this, and there's so many entrenched uh, viewpoints on both sides of an issue, particularly as we've seen throughout the crisis differences between Germany and France. But on PSI, and in terms of what private sector bondholders in Greece are willing to accept in terms of their contribution to a Greek bailout. Now, as our listeners know, private sector bondholders agreed to a 21% haircut on their Greek sovereign debt as part of the bailout package agreed in July. Now, are they likely to take a, more of a haircut? Or are they going to hold the governments to it? Well, I would say that this, again, is is very emblematic of the of the situation we've had all along. The German, um, German government has been very vocal about saying we need broader participation from the private sector. We need as much as a 50% to 60% haircut to reflect the prices these bonds are actually trading at in the market and what is a highly illiquid market, but that, that they should be written down to 50 to 60%. Now, on the opposite of that, you have banks, 
Um, you have some government figures, but a lot of banks saying there's no way I'm going to take more than the 21 percent haircut. Number one, because it was agreed and it will unsteady the markets again that if they believe they cannot believe in proposals that are negotiated and agreed. But the second biggest thing, and I think that, um, you know, one issue that we're trying to convey through this coverage is that if they take a more than 21 percent haircut on Greece, what that opens up is how much they should be discounting, most particularly their Italian holdings and their Spanish holdings. So many bankers, senior bankers will say to me, you know, Megan, look, it's not the fact that I can't uh, I can't afford a 50 to 60 percent haircut on Greece. You know, most banks have taken significant write-ons already and that these holdings in and of themselves would certainly not would cause a little bit of pain in terms of capital but but um but it is generally well prepared for that the issue is more would they be able to afford a 30 percent haircut on italy or a 20 percent haircut on spain and that's what they're very reluctant to get into evolved the market saying well look if you have to take that on greece what is really the valuation of your other holdings? Do you think we're going to start seeing some banks take their own haircuts as they report their earnings at the end of this quarter? We've seen a sub-movement to that. For example, BNP Paribas has said that they will have taken, they closed the books, and that if the deal is not agreed, they will have taken a bigger haircut up to 58% or 55% on those bonds. But then, you know, you have this other issue of the of the recap as well coming through. So, you know, we've got these two huge things. And with the recap, you know, and this perceived recap, there's still so many issues, again, about how it's going to be done. Will weaker banks go first or will it go on a national government by government basis? Again, this is like an intractable, it seems, issue between between France and Germany as to how this should progress. But we do seem to be making progress. I think for the first time in this podcast, I can definitively say, I feel like there's light at the end of the tunnel. That's impressive because we <laughs> it does feel like Groundhog Day. <laughs> but on another story that sometimes feels like Groundhog Day, let's turn to the UK, where NBNK, the investment vehicle headed by Gary Hoffman, who used to head Northern Rock, is now um, going to be bidding for his old bank. In August, Northern Rock said it hoped to return to profit in 2012 for the first time since the financial crisis. So what does that mean for its prospects for sale? Well, I mean, this is quite an interesting one. Like you highlighted there, you know, Gary Hoffman used to run Northern Rock. He was drafted in, um, you know, soon after Northern Rock's failure to try and rescue uh, the, the bank. And he oversaw the split and the sort of regeneration of Northern Rock and he left um, last year. Now, because of his knowledge, um, very intense knowledge of the company, he was blocked from bidding for a year. And that deadline was due to expire um, in November. It's been brought forward, you know, a, a few weeks. So he's been given permission sort of over over the weekend to launch a bid through his new vehicle should he want to. Um, and he is likely to prog- progress with that, though it will never be his priority. You know, MBNK, which is this new vehicle that, that Gary is now leading, um, has been very clear that it's goal is the Lloyd's branches that are also being sold. And that's a portfolio of sort of 600 or so branches um, compared with Northern Rock sort of 80. So it's much bigger and much more desirable for a new bank trying to set up in the market. But clearly the government is keen to get as much interest as possible in Northern Rock and as competitive a bidding process as possible in the state-owned bank. You know, I think the interest there has been somewhat muted um, 
We've only had two other interested parties, Virgin Money, um, Richard Branson's banking arm, and uh, JC Flowers, the US private equity firm. And I think that was a bit disappointing that there weren't more sort of buyers queuing up from Northern Rock. So they're keen to sort of gen up as much interest as possible um, to try and claw back, you know, some value for the taxpayer um, sort of three years after the Northern Rock's collapse. What's the timing on this? Well, they haven't, they've been very careful not to set a definitive timeline because, again, they don't want to sort of exclude any bidders. They were keen to keep it open for as long as possible, sort of to in, uh, so Gary Hoffman could come back in. But they are keen um, to try and get a buyer in place before the end of the year. Um, you know, that that's always been their, their sort of goal. And we're looking at hopefully about a billion pounds for the sale of um, what's called the good part of Northern Rock, the essential sort of core banking elements. Um, whether, you know, the recent volatility in the markets will mean that they can get that price. You know, I've had bankers say to me that, you know, that could be wildly optimistic now and we could be looking at sort of closer to sort of 700 million or something. And that would be actually only 50% of the 1.4 billion that the government injected um, into this part of Northern Rock. So it be quite a significant loss. I'm curious as to with the different sort of structure of the entities bidding, what we'd think about a rebrand of Northern Rock in terms of, um, you know, moving that out of the legacy crisis era view. Yeah, well, I think if Virgin Money were to win it, then it would be absorbed into the Virgin brand. I mean, that's what they think gives them the edge is their, you know, their their brand. And it's quite popular with consumers. It's like you say, it gets rid of the whole sort of tainted Northern Rock name. JC Flowers would obviously, uh, you know, it would be unlikely to keep the Northern Rock name. I think anybody would. NBNK, you know, has already got brands in mind. And the key thing there is that, you know, unless they win something else, unless they can uh, can buy a much bigger entity, something like Lloyd's um, or potentially National Australia Bank, they're not going to go for Northern Rock on its own. Uh, it would just be too small. So whatever they do, you know, they would they would rebrand it as something completely new. Thanks very much, Charlene. So now let's look across the ocean at J.P. Morgan, which, as always, was one of the first banks to report and, frankly, was not very um, exciting when we heard from them. What does it tell us, um, Megan, that J.P. Morgan had a very uninspiring quarter? Yeah, you know, it's sort of of two minds on this one because we had a massive rally last week uh, in the markets up until about the J.P. Morgan earnings. And it's sort of two flip sides. One is that their results in one way showed the benefits of being a diverse universal banking group because the investment bank performed so weakly. The invest- weekly, the investment bank made up only 16% um, of earnings this quarter, uh, which traditionally is above, you know, 40 to 50, et cetera. Wow. So that's very interesting. But, you know, again, the flip side is showing the investment bank was so weak, you know, yeah. and is that business coming back and and sort of the impact of regulation and just very sour market conditions had on them. Now, uh, J.P. Morgan's earnings were affected by a one-off charge, um, a debt valuation adjustment, or DVA, as it's commonly known, and that is likely to be a trend. Not uh, not so much from the U.S. banks, but in in European banks in particular, we've already had UBS say that they'll have a similar charge, and basically that's a charge that comes from a widening of the firm's own credit spreads. And in J.P. Morgan's case, that was a 1.9 billion positive add into their. Um, so so ID actually, they revenues. did worse than it well looked. when you when you take when you strip out that charge, which was also partially offset by some hedging costs, 
the results look dire. I mean, I'm just looking down the page right now. You know, uh, advisory fees down five uh, percent, equity underwriting fees down forty seven percent. You know, fixed income down fourteen percent year on year. Um, it was a it was a horrible quarter for the investment bank. That is going to be repeated across the board, pretty much, unless we see someone who pulls a rabbit out of a hat, like Morgan Stanley did uh, last quarter and the second quarter with a very positive upside surprise. Um, and we'll be just be looking to see just how bad things were across the sector. Now, one thing that came through a little bit last quarter was actually the firms who missed, um, who sort of took too much risk off the table. That was the case for Goldman, which reports tomorrow. Uh, that was the case for UBS, actually, interestingly, um, sort of missed out a lot on, on the gains. It's going to be – it's the firms who've been able to sort of um, manage the risk profile and risk on and risk off at the times, you know, when the market's taking that, that sort of have been able to survive a little bit strongly. It'll be really interesting to see Morgan Stanley's earnings tomorrow. But Goldman Sachs is actually expected to take um, – expected to have a loss in the third quarter by many analysts, which will be their first uh, since the crisis. And that's basically – due to the regulatory impact of the cutback they have on proprietary trading and just market volatility in their in their businesses that um, you know sort of invest their own money uh, are expected to have performed very poorly so uh, I don't think JP Morgan is going to be an outlier outlier in having very poor investment banking results but you just never know who's managed to sort of play a blinder um, you know even despite low volumes. Um, even despite, you know, very weak deal-making conditions, which will always impact it. But there will be, I think, um, some choppiness in the earnings that we see. Do you think this is really the future of investment banking, which is just sharply reduced revenue? Yeah, absolutely. Long term, this business is challenged. But if we look at the past six months of this business, we've had a Eurozone crisis that has really kept volumes depressed and clients on the sidelines. So that has been, I would say, uh, an unusual pattern of of behavior. And the second thing is we do have this massive adjustment to regulation where the banks are, you know, pushing themselves to meet the regulatory burden in advance of even things that are coming, you know, being phased in over time. So I do think we are at an unusual squeezed moment. Um, and I do think that once we have more less volatility, more uh, positive economic news, we'll obviously see a return in sort of traditional IBD businesses of capital mm-hmm. raising, on both the debt and equity markets, and obviously with um, with with M and A volumes coming back, the bigger long term issue for these banks is obviously in sales and trading um, and areas and activities, particularly in the fixed income markets, that become very expensive and capital you know capital intensive businesses that are tremendously disadvantaged under the new regulatory framework and. A lot of those businesses aren't coming back. So what we're going to see for the next several years is, you know, job losses, revenues being down, um, and these banks need to shrink to to fit into the new paradigm. And whether they'll be able to shrink fast enough, you know, is the big question. And whether they really are um, realistic about the future of investment banking as an industry, um, I'm not so sure. On that optimistic note, let's wrap it up for the day. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of these stories on www.ft.com forward slash banking. But now, all that remains to do is to thank today's guests, Megan and Charlene, and thank you for listening. Goodbye. Banking Weekly is produced by Emily Cadman. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support comes from ServiceNow the AI platform for business transformation. 
You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.